Welcome to Mud Season, a podcast that cuts through the mud and brings you true stories from the Vermont lab. Today we talk to criminal justice sociologist Kathy Fox about the mass incarceration crisis in this country and steps that we're taking to reduce it. Mass incarceration is real. Other people don't even feel it. When you talk about mass incarceration to a person that's not affected by or don't feel they're affected by, they say they should lock them up. We've chosen prison. And never in my wildest dreams did I think I would be here. America's number one at a lot of good things, but we're number one at the wrong thing when it comes to this. We're number one at incarcerating people. Over-incarceration of adults and juveniles in America. In which the punishment is determined by mandatory sentencing laws. I sentenced him to 20 years in Florida State Prison, which is the mandatory minimum. Welcome to Mud Season, Dr. Fox. Thank you. Happy to be here. So perhaps we can start by talking about this situation that we're in today. We have something like 2.4 million prisoners, as much as a quarter of the prisoners in the world are in prisons in the U.S. How did we get here? Well, there's a long answer and a short answer, so I'll give you the short answer. Um, The short answer is really the war on drugs, um, which started in the 60s but in earnest in the 80s. And um, uh, and at the same time, there was... uh, sort of some a little bit of public hysteria around crime and a sen- a distorted sense that crime was out of control and that it was going up and in fact at, at a time when it was going down we were still incarcerating people at at a amazing clip compared to you know our counterparts in Europe for example um and so the you know there was a lot of sentiment that we needed to be tougher on crime and the prison just became the default go to response to deal with every kind of crime. So in the 1970s, you know, it was mostly just violent offenders, and there were only 700,000 people in prison. And then we started incarcerating people for drugs. And that that was um, a huge driver. And that's where we get to these laws like three strikes and you're out, which took away flexibility from judges. Explain that. Yeah. Well, three strikes um, is part of it. Um, There's a larger phenomenon, which is just determinate sentencing. So a lot of states adopted determinate sentencing instead of indeterminate. And what that means is before you'd get a range like two to five years. And based on whether you were rehabilitated, you could get out in two or, you know, you could stay till five. Um, and over time, states, uh, because people stopped believing in rehabilitation, then states started adopting the higher end, and it was just a fixed range. So that led to this, um, you know, sort of increase in people in prison, more people in prison and also for longer. Um, Three strikes started in California. They had the most severe one, um, and various states have adopted it. And it basically means that for your third felony, you can get 25 to life most places. Um, And so it doesn't have to be a violent felony in some places. So you could be... um, the one case that went to the Supreme Court, a guy had stolen $600 worth of golf clubs. That was his third strike, and he got a life sentence. So that's the kind of thing that w- would have been unthinkable in the 1970s. Which 
contributed to this growing population in prisons. And can you talk a little bit about who, how, who was most impacted by these laws? Who, what is the profile? Who are these people in prison? Well, they're mostly, if you did sort of an analysis um, across the country, you would find amazing similarities, which is that it's mostly lower income people, um, lower education, um, and, it, you know, with regard to the, when you look specifically at the drug, uh, the incarcerated drug user population or sellers, um, largely African-American, um, really high over-representation of African-Americans in that particular segment of the population. And is that true across all states, even states like Vermont, that is a state that has a lower population of African-Americans in general? Yes, it's uh, true everywhere. Um, Vermont obviously has a very small um, African-American population relative to other places, but um, one of the highest rates of over-representation of African-Americans in the prison system. So it's listed as one of the top two most um, over-represented. And why is it that people of color or people who are less educated are the people who are ending up in our prisons, do you think? Well, it, it can be a lot of um, complicated reasons. I think um, with with regard to African-Americans, I mean, there has been a, had been a policy in New York, for example, of stop and frisk. Um, the vast majority of people that were ever stopped and frisked by police, meaning, you know, just patted down, asked for ID, were African-American and Latino. Um, and if you look even in a place like Vermont, um, Stephanie Seguino here, a, a colleague in economics, has found that people <clears throat> of color are more likely to be stopped by police, more likely to be searched. And then, it, you know, so if you're searched and you have something, you know, then you're more likely to be, be processed through the criminal justice system. Whereas what that means is that there may be more Caucasian people that are not stopped and may be, you know, just as guilty. Um, and, uh, so in some places, um, and by the way, this prison population is overwhelmingly male. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, it, it's been, the female incarcerated population has been increasing a lot since like around 2000. Um, and it pretty dramatically in some places like Oklahoma, for example, um, but, you know, overwhelmingly, it's still men um, around. I don't know what the other question was about education. Education so, level. So yes. another thing I wanted to add, So you say that um, the population in these prisons is disproportionately has a lower education level, lower income. Why is that? Right. Well, it, it's complicated. Um, obviously, if people don't finish their high school education, they're going to have difficulty getting um you know, either meaningful or solid employment that would help them support themselves so they uh, may be more attracted to criminal opportunities than other people. Um, and they also would not, if they were arrested, would have less access to um, private representation. And, um, you know, the results are worse with public defenders, not because they're not great attorneys, but because they're under-resourced generally. The other thing is... Um, uh, sometimes lower educated people or lower income people who don't uh, aren't as familiar with um, sort of navigating the complex system of the criminal justice system will agree to a plea agreement, um, and, which means you're pleading, guilt, pleading guilty to a lesser charge, um, and that will 
put them through the criminal justice system and other people may have, um, you know, if you have a private attorney, it, you know, um, advising you against that strategy. So you're more likely to get out. So uh, my understanding is that maybe as many as half of the prisoners are in federal prisons and half are in state prisons. Is there any difference in how states, um, you know, incarcerate or rates of incarceration by state? Um, there's huge variation. Um, and in fact, it's, it's a really shifting landscape at the moment, which is kind of an exciting time because a lot of states are moving to um, try to decarcerate, mostly because they just can't afford it anymore. And I think they're realizing that the results they get from it are, are not really worth the investment. Um, so there's more movement at the state level than there is at the federal level. Um, you know, the federal level is still um, a lot of drug charges of, you know, people uh, going across state lines to sell large amounts of drugs, things like that. Um, whereas a lot of states are moving away from uh, prosecuting at all or incarcerating um, low-level drug offenders. So with that many total prisoners, two million plus, how do we manage that? How is that? Yes. Not well. Uh, the, the increase was so rapid and huge beginning in the 1980s that a lot of states like California, for example, just frantically built prisons, just kept expanding the prison population. Um, and, you know, then there were a lot of um, changes that had to happen about around that. So for example, if you have a huge prison population, then you can't manage a lot of movement within the facility. So you have more people in um, segregation or you have, uh, you know, uh, fewer officers per person. So there's a lot less opportunity involved. And also the um, in terms of a finite pool of resources, it will get spent on things like security and maintaining um, safety rather than opportunities for rehabilitation. So it, it's had a really negative effect um, in all kinds of different ways. So since the, the advance of um, three strikes laws, for example, uh, recidivism rates have gone up um, just generally. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that prisons are just overwhelmed and can't do as good a job as they could have before. So we've turned some of this over to the private sector. What yes. is the role of the private prison industry in, in managing and in even contributing to this in some way? Yeah, it's a, it, again, it's a, there's a long answer, a complicated answer. Um, so the debate about private prisons is some people say, well, they're, they're better run because they are cheaper and because of competition, then they will be motivated to produce a better product. Um, there's not much evidence for that because there's only a couple of private prison companies that are really players. Um, and uh, and then the criticism about them is that, you know, because they're trying to cut costs, they don't offer as as good a programming or as much programming. The guards aren't as trained uh, and, you know, paid less, all those kinds of things. So um, for in Vermont, for example, we can't hold all the prisoners that get sent to corrections. So they send, like right now, they just sent about 250 out of state down to Mississippi. And um, so, you know, one of the questions is, well, should we build more prisons instead of sending them out of state? And, 
you know, if you, and the argument is if you build it, they will come. So if you build it, you will fill it. So there's a good reason not to build it. However, the consequences, then you're ending up sending people out of state. I, I think the answer is to, to reduce the prison population by at least 25%, and then you're, that problem would be solved. Is there some thinking that the industry, which is enormous, multi-billion dollars, has some interest in increasing the number of people who are in prison or at least maintaining the status quo because there's money to be made? Yes, they, get, they operate like a hotel. They get paid per bed, per day, um, $71 a day, I think, in this uh, current contract. Um, so, you know, there's some research. Well, part of the problem is it's really hard to do research on them, and there's not very much oversight because they're a private company. Um, but there's some indication that they would have, let's say you had a small infraction that you, that you committed inside, they would have an interest in giving you an extra 30 days or an extra 60 days because that keeps their bed full. The other thing is the private prison industry does a lot of lobbying to Congress for longer sentences, um, and they which they benefit from that directly, which is um one of the criticisms is that they are then profiting on on the deprivation of liberty uh, for financial interests. Um, let's turn just to Vermont for a minute, because sometimes we think that we are immune from some of these other things, but we also have a very large prison population. I don't know offhand you can say any. Do you know something about what's happening in Vermont? Yeah, um, we Vermont, um, I mean, I think all prison populations are too large based on um, you know, the, the outcomes, uh, if you look at the result. However, Vermont has one of the smallest proportionally. Um, they have really made a move to to decarcerate over the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so. I mean, there was a, they were really overburdened for a while. And um, it, it's very difficult to impact that because corrections has to take whoever the courts send them. Uh, so really the the focus needs to be on the other end, you know, like the, the front door. So working with prosecutors and working with judges to get them to think of alternatives. Uh, Vermont has, uh, you know, it varies, but it's like around 1,100 um, prisoners in, at a given time. Uh, and that's down from what it was a few years ago. So I, I do think that they're trying, but it's, um, uh, it's, it's not a coordinated effort. You said a few minutes ago that recidivism rates may be up, but in general, what is happening with these populations as they return to the community? Well, I think um, starting in around 2000, the federal government started to realize that there were some real consequences to this mass incarceration because virtually everyone gets out. So people have a, a mistaken impression that, that there's lots of people doing life sentences. It's only about four or five percent that are doing life sentences. So around 95, 96 percent will eventually get out. Uh, so they have to go somewhere. Um, and so there's 700,000 people released from prisons in the United States every year. And so they're going back to communities. So I think the federal government has sort of realized that they were, um, that they needed to do something about that because they tended to just open the door give them a couple hundred bucks and say good luck. And then lo and behold, they would fail and come back often. Um, I've always been surprised by how many people 
actually succeed under those conditions. Uh, so there has been more coordinated effort at the federal level to try to uh, recognize that there are barriers and obstacles in their way after a prison term and to try to help them with jobs, housing, um, you know, some more financial assistance just to get them on their feet. So there has been a, a movement at the federal level and um, states have also uh, begun to take that up. And you've done some research in particular on a program in Vermont. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, a, it's called uh, COSA for short, but it's Circles of Support and Accountability, which is a program started in Canada. Um, and it's for medium to high risk offenders who have been deemed, they've done their time, but they're, they're for whatever reasons, considered still vulnerable to reoffense. Um, and so, you know, they tend to be people who um, lack support and, you know, would struggle on the outside. So this program creates a little circle around them of community volunteers, just ordinary citizens who make a commitment for a year to meet with the person weekly to assess, you know, check in about whatever issues they have, help them with jobs, housing, um, maybe repairing some relationships if they need rides, places, just whatever it is, you know, starting with where they are and trying to help them in those ways. Um, and uh, it's Vermont has done more of these, uh, has a, the most robust program in the country, and has done more. They've I just found out the other day they've completed 425 of these. So that means 425 people have had one of these circles of support. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's really a way of recognizing that, you know, when someone gets released to a community, it's actually a community issue. It's not really a statewide issue. It's a, at, at the community level. Um, and that communities can shun the person and will likely have bad results, or they can help them to reintegrate and therefore increase community safety. So um, somehow we've gotten into the situation where we've lost some of the humanity of our society. It feels like so many people behind bars for, mm -hmm. for reasons it may be somewhat trivial, really. And, um, you know, you've been thinking about this and studying this all your life for a long time. Yeah, anyway. a long time. <laughs> so where, do, where is it all headed? What do you see? What's the... Yeah. Well, I think that for a long time there was a split between liberals and conservatives. Conservatives were um, tended to be more, um, you know, crime control, tough on crime. Liberals tended to be uh, more interested in rehabilitation. And now you see a convergence, um, I think in part based on the incredible cost um, that the criminal justice system, that states have to pay for, and the federal government has to pay for, and then there are opportunity costs. It means you don't have as much money to spend on education or some other things that we might want to invest in. Uh, so the cost issue has sort of um, created a little bit of an alliance around there. So I think that there is a movement to try to use prison for people that really need to be separated from us and can't be among us and that and to try to keep other people supervised within a community because there's a ton of research that shows that the, to whatever extent they can stay connected to their family, their job, those kind of stabilizing factors, then they're less likely to reoffend and that that's in everyone's interest to make sure that 
there aren't more victims and um, that people can create a good life for themselves after they've, after they've done their time. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure.